because you're jumping back into the gut. Oh, let's hey, go. Coach. Welcome to the Basketball Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Oliver. I appreciate you joining us for this week's podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit basketballimmersion.com for more coaching resources and access to all the basketball podcasts. I hope you will give us a shout out on social media, on Twitter at Bball Immersion, or on Instagram at Basketball Immersion to help me continue to share the game. Enjoy the episode. Coach, I really appreciate your support and sharing of the podcast. I'm excited to announce a new partnership that we have started and we are now presented by and supported by the outstanding team at risingcoaches.com. Aligning with a basketball brand like Rising Coaches has always been a goal of mine since starting the basketball podcast, and I'm grateful for the opportunity that has come our way. Rising Coaches provides access to the largest coaching tree in basketball. Through them, you can develop your craft as a coach, connect with other coaches and decision makers, be the first to learn about countless job opportunities on the exclusive Rising Coaches member site. Go to risingcoaches.com today to find out more and become a member. Awesome to welcome Noah LaRoche to the Basketball Podcast. Noah's owner of Integrity Hoops and as a player development consultant and coach, he helps players prepare for the draft and he works with pros like Blake Griffin, Anthony Davis, Russell Westbrook, Paul George, Victor Oladipo, and Dinah Tarasi, to name a few. His focus for his players is on developing skills, character, and basketball IQ, and we're going to talk about that and more today. Noah, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Great to have you here. Uh, so many things. My first exposure to you and what you were doing and what you are doing was through uh, R- Rob Santacola. And we're going to talk about Rob a little bit later, but also an article called Inside Blake Griffin's Scientific Offseason. And it was the first time I heard, and you know we're aligned somewhat on this, connect the fact that skills and decisions go <laughs> together. One of the things you said, and I'd love for you to comment on this, is each drill was designed to simulate live game action. That's important, isn't it? Yeah, I think it's important, um, or I don't think, the research suggests, right, that uh, you, want, you want practice to represent the games, right, representative learning design. It's a principle of nonlinear pedagogy. And so as much as possible, you want practice. You want con- Learning is contextual, no matter what you're learning, whether it's basketball, business, relationships, uh, money, it's contextual. And and there's there's continuums of continuums on that, um, but yeah, I mean the game, like all things in life, the mind the mind the mind is what is what separates people. Whether you're an athlete, you're a businessman, um, no matter what it is, the mind and your ability to anticipate and make decisions. That's the hallmark of skill performance. It's your ability to anticipate and make decisions. That is what skill is. <laughs> the thing is, and and. And this again is not Noel LaRoche because I'm not I, I I'm not that I'm not that smart. Um, it takes me a while to pick things up. People that know me would agree with both those. Um, this is what the research says. This is what people who study this and, and do the research. This is their careers, right? The the skill performance is the relationship between the performer and their environment. That's what it is. Um, so you have to be in the environment. The environment gives you invitations for action. And first, you have to be aware of what those invitations are, right? Versus it's just a general awareness, understanding what are the invitations for action, and then make decisions based on that. And the two most important skills, two most important tactical skills, they did a study in the, uh, elite basketball players. What are they? We talk about this all the time with coaches. Positioning and decision-making. So think about that. So now they're talking about positioning, 
as one of the two most important skills in, in, in adult basketball players, elite basketball players and positioning. We never talk about that, right? As you talk, we talk about ball handling, footwork, bags, tough shots, whatever that is in skill and positioning is a skill. And, and when you think about it in that sense, you go, that makes sense because when you're in good position, you can make better what? Decisions. And so explain to us different. what positioning is so people understand what you mean by positioning. Uh, positioning on the basketball floor. Yeah. Is it positioning in preparation or is it just positioning in terms of spacing relative to uh, opponent, teammate? I think it's both, right? One, you've got to start with spacing, right? You, I mean, on offense, so you want to stretch the defense. I mean, that's just the foundational principle of time. It's invasion. This is an invasion sport, right? It's no different than hockey, field hockey, soccer, rugby. It's an invasion sport. And they all are a hockey. If I didn't say hockey, they all are on the same principles of time and space, right? So on offense, uh, we want to create time and space, that advantage on defense. We want to take that away. It's very simple. So a foundational principle um, is creating space. So yeah, your positioning, how you start possessions, right? Defensively or offensively is important. But then how you're constantly in position during that during that possession is just as important. Positioning and decision making and skill is the ability to anticipate and then make decisions, right? And um, you know, Playmakers Advantage, such a great book. It talks about cognition. And I love their definition. It's the ability to search, decide, and execute. And most players, believe it or not, don't know what they're even searching for. Some instinctively do well, but they say, you know, the, the, the elite players, they function on one thing and one thing only. Whether they consciously know this or not, most of them are unconsciously competent of this. Like they do it, but they, don't, they couldn't really explain what's happening. They function on space. For solutions, they don't function on moves. They act where's the space and they manipulate that space because they know on offense, once they attack the space, what does it force the defense to do? Pull out a position. And what's the most, we just went to it. What's the most important thing you want? What's the most important tactical skills? Positioning. And what is every coach when they talk about defense? What's the first thing they talk about? Position. Yeah, taking away space, <laughs> taking away position. Getting, getting in a stance, get in position, get in our shell, et cetera. So let's pull them out of position. How do we pull them out of position? We create space. We attack space. From there, now we can anticipate and make decisions if we're all on the same framework, right? Which, um, you know, is a whole different topic <laughs> issue. But, uh, yeah, so, I mean, skill is – and I think that I've been coaching for 15 years, um, and I started with youth just by – just not 15 years this month, just started coaching a fifth and sixth grade basketball team for one of my youngest brothers. I'm the oldest of seven. One of my younger brothers at the time was in sixth grade. They needed a basketball coach. That's how I started coaching. And, um, and I've gone through, I've tried all the tricks. I've tried everything. You know, that was back in the day, the Gannon, Gannon Baker was big, right? Him and Alan Stein kind of were the, were the big things in the Nike skills academies. And I've run the gamut with all this stuff. And had a lot of experience and you just constantly always trying to find the best ways to help your players learn and grow. That's it. I mean, that's as simple as it is. It's nothing more than that. It's not trying to be famous. It's not trying to be innovative. It's not trying to be flashy. You're trying to put your players, your coaches, your teams, whoever you're working with organizations in the best position to have the best possible outcomes because human natures innately human beings innately want to grow. That's what we want to do. We all have peace of mind when we feel like we're growing. That's it. So how do we do that? 
right? And I, I, I don't have all the answers. I have more questions. But by you know through study and talking with smart people and reading, you slowly evolve. And my evolution of skill, I used to think the same things. We had cones, we had tennis balls, we had, you know, it was. Uh, uh, I mean, it's embarrassing in some ways to look back on you know stuff we used to do, but it's good. Uh, but skill is the relationship between the performer and their environment. No matter if it's dancing, if it's hockey, if it's business, your your relationship between you and the envir- business environment, basketball. That's what that's what skilled people do, and their ability to anticipate and make decisions. Right, and that's what it is. And, and I tried all those things too, so I know where you're coming from, and I really relate to that too because it's I, trial and error, isn't it? We're not supposed to have all the answers. I mean, I, I would say I'm more of a tinkerer than anything, of trying to figure things out. But I'm just a basketball coach. I mean, that's about as simple as it is. There's no fancy name for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and why are we having a struggle getting coaches to this next part, which is applying evidence-based ideas, as you said, around research? I think, uh, one, you know, the biggest thing at the highest levels is it's job preservation. Let's be honest, right? And, and it's uncomfortable to try something new. When you've, when you've been successful, you've gotten to a certain level one way, you get there, you do not want to rock the boat. Uh, that's real. And I don't, and I understand, I would understand that. You know, I, I, I've been successful doing it this way for this long. Um, and, you know, and, and there's not a lot of room for coaches to experiment without consequence. You know, they're playing on national TV or there's big money involved. And, and I get that. And it's, I don't know, I, I can honestly say, I don't know if I would, if I would, you know, evolve and change as much if I wasn't able just to be in the shadows and constantly tinker in, in, in gyms that no one knows about, you know, to be honest. So I understand that position from coaches. It, there's, a, there's a lot of pressure to win, especially in a culture now, a lot of pressure to win. I'm reading this book, the De- Developing Decision Makers by Lynn Kidman, and she's talking to the coach from the All Blacks. And that's about an empowerment approach to, uh, to coaching. And um, it's really, you know, well, how do you measure success as a coach? Um, is it the growth of your individual players, the growth of your team? And it could be that, but it doesn't matter because the media and culture, they're about winning. And, and, and that's your job. That's your livelihood. You've got a wife, kids, whatever it is. So it's really tough. There's a lot of pressure on these men and women coaching at high levels. That was a unique thing with Coach Anacola and why he was able just to go guns blazing, even when there were some periods of instability. It's like, I'm not on national TV. I'm not going to lose my job. Like I want to get better. And, 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 and when you're changing, right. When you're trying to learn and grow, whether you're trying to develop a skill or a new way of thinking or a new way of coaching, you go through these periods of instability, right? You you're in this this period of stability, you know what you're doing, you're comfortable, right. But then you move to this period of instability where it's, it's chunky. It's, you know, what they talk about was it Bjork talks about deliberate practice. It's like walking up an icy hill, you know, every step is measured. You might fall and then slide back down, but you got to get back up. Um, that's an uncomfortable period. And then when you've got eyeballs all around, you've got pressure on you, you don't want to go through that. And we all do it. I'm going to default to what I know in pressure situations, right? I, we all do it. So you're going to default to what you know. And, you know, it's an interesting concept because, Coaches don't really get an off season, right? When you think about it from this perspective, I've thought about this a lot the last several years, to be honest. So players, you know, what, no matter what level they're at, they can go and hold themselves away if they want. Now everyone's on social media, but they can hold themselves away for two or three months. 
and, and transform their games and go through these hours and hours of mistakes, right? Mistakes are the bridge to development, no matter what you're trying to do. And, and if you're afraid to do that, or if there's pressure on you not to make mistakes, you're never going to have that growth period. So players can go do that two, three, four months. When do coaches get to do that, right? How do coaches develop? They might listen to a podcast. They might go to a, 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 a clinic with eight different speakers and take notes, but let's be real. That's not, that's not true growth and development. That's not, it might spark some ideas, but that's not what learning is. Learning is long-term, right? Learning is going from the conscious to the subconscious. So how do we coaches reps on designing their own practice, executing their own practice, you know, walking through that period of instability, having, you know, reflecting on that. It's a major, it's a major issue for coaches and it was a reason. So when I was uh, one of my stops along my journey, uh, I was in I was with the Oklahoma City Thunder for a year in the front office, and I was doing just essentially edits for the college for the for the front office on um, the draft and free agency, et cetera. And but I was also you know assisting. I was in the video room, so I was with the video coordinators for the coaches, and we were all in one room. And I was, but my was really doing stuff for the front office. But when we had practice, shootarounds, et cetera, I would be on the floor, rebounding, passing, whatever, dummy D, um, wiping sweat, all that stuff. And I remember being there. And, you know, so I was 30 at the time, I think, 31. And I was like, wow, this is pretty cool. I'm in the NBA. Like, right, I'm from Exeter, New Hampshire. I No basketball pedigree, below average Division three player. Dad, you know, laid carpet. For, like, this, this, was, this was cool. But... And I had three or four years of coaching up until that point, five years of coaching at that point. And I th- remember thinking to myself going, this is pretty cool. And, you know, the Oklahoma City does a great job, great organization. You learn, you grow, there's stability. Sam does a good job. I mean, fantastic job, obviously. And I said, and I remember thinking, but I'm not going to, I'm not getting any better at my craft because I have no opportunities to plan practice, execute practice. Like when I'm home, I'm on the court 25, 30 hours a week all year long reading, then going to, you know, trying to apply, going to the court, going, oh, that didn't work. How does this work? You know, constantly tinkering and, and, and getting that deliberate practice, right. As a coach. So I said, how am I this? I honestly think the best chance for me to get better as a coach is to leave. And so that's what I did. Um, And, and I'm thankful I did because I, I wanted to practice coaching. That's what I want to do. I want to become a better coach. And if I believe that players develop through practice, deliberate, thoughtful, representative practice, right? I needed to practice what I preach. And as a coach, I need to develop through practice, right? Because all our outcomes are just based on our inputs. And the inputs are always practice, no matter what the field is, whether it's, again, business, sports, relationships, it's all about practice and embodying those things that you're practicing. Um, so. I don't know where we were going with this, but well, anyway, you were going in great places. Yeah, there's, yeah. A huge, there's a huge, there's a huge, um, I don't have quite the solution, but it's on my mind a lot. Um, how, you know, how do these guys get better? Because when push comes to shove, even if they try new things and I've experienced this with really good coaches trying to help guide along when push comes to shove and that first loss happens or that first pushback happens, or it gets a little chunky you're going to go back to what you know because you got to win the next game. And I understand that. I get that wholeheartedly. And that's tough because I know, and I, I've done it with players, I've done it with coaches for a long time now. Um, I know that, that that period of instability 
that period of chunkiness of where thing uh, that we got to push through that because the other side, we get to a new level of stability. And these things that seem complicated and we don't fully understand, we get to the other side. Now they become simple, right? That's what wisdom does. It simplifies. And in order to gain wisdom, you have to go to these periods of, of complication where things complicated, where you can't pull it all together. And then you have this aha moment, nonlinear pedagogy, right? One little tweak, one little, one, one more step. All of a sudden, boom, we take off and it's really tough. It's really tough. And, and I know not just in coaching, but in other areas of my life, like I need to learn and grow. And I get to those periods where, man, this is really tough. Am I going to push through or am I going to go back to what I know? You know, because, you know, I might lose, you know, there, there's consequences. It's, it's really tough to change. I mean, that's change, right? What is the saying? Like, don't, you know, you try to change someone else, but you've been trying to change yourself for all these years and that hasn't worked. So stop worrying about changing other people. You know, it's really tough. It's really tough. And I explain it as saying, again, like our hashtag share the game. I'm, we're just sharing it. And that's what I, I'm grateful you for you doing here is you're sharing stuff and coaches have to adapt it, adopt it, or again, throw it out, build on it, challenge it, whatever their decision is. But it's our responsibility, I feel, to share these things. Why do you feel like it's your responsibility? Because we've had these opportunities to have these low pressure reps, to be honest. I feel like you hit it right on. And I feel that's been a big blessing in my coaching. And I talk to a lot of coaches that have had these opportunities to be able to coach youth or to coach young levels or to be a coach, even to be a head coach before they've been in a head coach. And you think about how many people are put in those situations. It's not resistance. It's just, again, job preservation. Yeah. And it's not a negative. It's a reality of the situation. So those of us that can do these experimental tinkering, we can share it. It helps people. I mean, that's a good, and I wasn't asking. I was more curious. I, I like it because I, I think that I haven't done a good, I haven't done any job at that. I, I've been pretty low key because I like my autonomy to be quite odd. You're be starting quite with right. this podcast, coach. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> But I, I, and to be fair, Chris, because you're a persistent guy, that's really what it was. Um, you know, it's, uh, I have a friend who was an independent hockey coach. He had his NHL clients and then consulted for the Maple Leafs, just got hired full-time with Montreal. And he talks about it all the time, job preservation. And you see, it's not just, you know, the NBA or ACC or mid-major, low-major. It's, these are invasion sports and it's professional sports and it's, it's um, you see it everywhere and you see it in different industries. <clears throat> um, yeah, it's well, it's let's... low pressure reps. Yeah. And, and coaches don't get that. You know, the other thing is that I've found um, and this is what what I always grew up thinking is, you know, at the end of the and you coached. Right. So at the end of your season. What do you, what, what's like your farewell? You probably have some exit meetings with players, right? Or, or your team or whatever. And you say, hey, Bobby, you know, you know, I need you to come back with a better shooter and a better, you know, faster and stronger. Hey, Jimmy, I need you to be better ball handling, right? You, you have your development needs. And I remember growing up and, uh, and the coaches would have those meetings, right? You say, hey, guys, we're close. We need to get better. We're right there. Noah, you need X, Y, Z. Johnny, you need A, B, C. And you're like, coach is right. I'm locked in. Okay. So you lock in and you get better and you do all these things. And I'm like, okay, I come back the next year. I'm feeling good. I'm in shape. I, whatever. I worked on my shooting, my ball handling, got the Rick Pitino drill book and did my stuff every day and the Allen Stein strength and conditioning. 
And he, I come back and I go, man, coach kind of looks the same. Actually looks worse. Man, practices are the same. Man, coach is still getting pissed. Oh, we're still running the same. Coach, coach didn't get any better. But coach was on my behind to get better, right? And if I didn't, there was consequences. And so instantly, whether you say that out loud or not, you lose respect for your coach. That, that at least that's how I felt. And now when there's no trust, when there's when trust starts to erode or respect in any relationship, you don't you don't maximize that. Right. And I remember growing up going if and I never thought about coaching. This is the weird thing about being a coach. I just thought about I don't want to be one of those people that ask other people to do things I'm not willing to do. I'm not going to do that. Um, and so now as a coach. Uh, working with players and and. Through the evolution, I've worked with a lot of youth, thousands and thousands of youth, good youth, bad youth, boys, girls, everything under the sun, um, groups, small groups, individual. I've always wanted, I always wanted, if I was going to, they were going to spend time and money with me, I was going to do the same as a coach. I was going to constantly try to get better. I was going to spend time and money on myself. And the thing I find that's very interesting to me is and this might not be true, but just in my small sample size, I guess a lot of coaches don't really spend a lot of money on themselves. A lot of coaches don't have coaches. And then you look at some of the, some of the, I'm in an um, uh, entrepreneurship group where I get coaches in entrepreneurship. I mean, you got some big hitters. I'm not in their groups. That's some big hitters making big money, getting coached still, you know, in, in the, in the field of entrepreneurship, entrepreneurism. And I think about that and you go to coaches and it's, you know, they, or they reach out Hey, you know, thinking about this, that, what, what does it look like? And they come back and they go, you know, can't get that with the, uh, the, um, the budget or whatever with the school, but coach, you make $4 million a year, <laughs> you know? So it's just, it's, uh, it was, it's just funny to me, you know? Uh, and I don't know if you've, if you've seen I, that or I've experienced that. And, and again, like it comes back to, sometimes I say, well, the whole point is job preservation, then this is a part of job preservation, right? <laughs> and, <laughs> or and development. Even with, players, yeah. even with players, right? It's like, yeah. I mean, relative to my income, you know, I spend, you know, a lot of money on coaching and uh, more so than most of the players I work with sometimes. And it's just interesting to me, I think. And, and, and what I will say is, you know, at the end of the day, you do want to, you know, those probably aren't great fits anyways, right? Because you do want to link up with people like the clients I have. We're, we're like-minded in that sense. Um, so, and that's not, I guess, a knock or, but it's just something that I've, I've, I've noticed, which has been interesting to me. So we're asking players to go spend time and money on themselves, right? Lots of time and money on themselves in many, some instances, and are the coaches doing the same thing? I guess that's my question. I don't know. You probably know better than I do because that's your world. Uh, it's not my world. But the small experience I've had, I don't see. It. And I could be wrong, too. Um, I could be. I could be. Maybe they're getting coached um, on leadership or some other things, I guess. But uh, that, that could be it. Um, well, it's a frustration for me. And I'll share a quick example. If I post a play on Twitter versus I post a segment talking about feedback, and evidence behind feedback. Which one do you think gets the most interaction? Probably the play, right? Hundred percent. It's it's not even close. And and from a business mindset, obviously, I've got to keep posting the plays because that draws people to the brand. But from a logical standpoint of what I'm trying to actually share, 
it it's not what I'm trying to share as much. Now, with those plays, I try and add some video animation to help them explain a deeper level of what the play and the decisions are. But isn't it's it's always the case. And I think again, it's something people understand. So it's something that they feel they can improve at. Whereas some of the research that we would share, it's a little bit beyond abstract for people. And that's challenging. Yeah, I mean, definitely can get. I mean, even for me, I'll read some of these books and I'm just like, okay, I just got to reread it. And and I, and I work with um, Ian Renshaw this summer, I mean, this summer and fall and spring and, and Derek Payne, checking some of these guys and working with them has helped me having conversations with them. Okay. Now I have a better understanding. Okay. What's an affordance? What's, you know, some of these words that I, I, I wouldn't fully understand. And, um, but uh, I mean, there's so much there, I think. Well, and, and the other part that goes with it, Noah, is that you've had a chance to, as you said, tinker. And that's the challenge. Like when you hear about some of these things, okay, constraints, let approach. Okay. What does that actually mean in practical terms for a basketball coach? And a plug, me and Ian Renshaw are doing a course this spring. So right. constraint, let approach for basketball coaches. I will share it when you do it. But, but these different things is like you, to apply them is the challenge. Like to learn them in a book context, okay, you got to do the work, but to apply them is the challenge, isn't it? But, and let me say this, it's no different for players. No different. With their playbook. <laughs> I, I showed you the play. You've got the playbook. There are 250 plays and you play four positions and there's five counters. You know, the playbook looks like a sushi menu, 4-2 rainbow roll into a 4-3 split. Like, and then I showed it to you, but the learning is long-term. How are they going to learn that without applying it, without making mistakes, without context? Um, and that's a whole different thing is just understanding. This is something I've thought about too. If you put a coach on a lie detector test and you ask them, say, coach, be honest. You're on a lie detector test. So you got to be honest. Are you more comfortable? If I need, I, you're hiring an assistant coach and I say, Chris, you're going to be my assistant. Would you rather coach? You might actually answer this different. Would you rather coach the offense or the defense? What would I, I believe on um, uh, 90% or higher, uh, what do you think coaches would pick? I, I really believe, and this, look, it goes back to when I first coached, I, I found this book from this first, first, fifth and sixth grade team I had. And they were like, there's full of thank yous. And like, you taught me so much defense wins championships and, and all this stuff. I'm like, oh my gosh, what was I doing to these kids? Um, I honestly believe most coaches would say defense. Hmm. And why is that though? Well, it's some, it's more controlled, I would say more structured. Um, and honestly, any player can play defense. I think it's simple. Yeah. How do, no, I think, I think the answer is this, what do coaches teach defense with? <laughs> what do they teach offense with? Begins with a P. <laughs> it's a place. Yeah. Yeah. So defense is easy to teach. You got a handful of principles and you coach effort, right. And, and all these things. Why is an offense the same? I don't even know if they spend more time in offense or defense. I'm just saying, if you ask the coach, what is he more, more comfortable? You're in charge of this part of the team, offense or defense. I would believe most coaches would be like, you know, I feel like I can coach defense. We got our principles and I got to hold guys accountable to effort. You know, offense, you know, we got this playbook. If we have talent one year, we might be good. If we don't, we might not. I don't want, you know, there's, they feel like there's less things in their control. That's just the experience as I've did. I've done a, as I've thought about it. And then I've done a, a you know, discrete survey. Sometimes when I have questions with coaches, Hey, 
if you're being honest, what would you rather coach? And these are, you know, high level coaches defense. Yep. Uh, I don't know if people teach, they might spend more time in offense. I'm not sure. Well, I'll give you an example here and you can offer your thoughts, but I'm coaching my daughter's third and fifth grades right now. And a bunch of girls in that age group that have never played basketball before uh, in, in any, you know, coached environment in that way. And the connection that we constantly try and make for them is why do you want to get more skilled? Because you have more fun, right? You, the more skilled you get decisions and, you know, pure tactics or technical skill, it leads to you having more possibilities, which leads to you having more fun. And in my mind, before they get in a real serious team situation, that all relates back to the offensive side of the ball. And uh, a player who enjoys playing offense is more likely to be retained in the sport longer rather than the player that just defends and rebounds and screens. Is that a fair comment? Yeah. I mean, I think at any level, like one fun. Yeah. At the youth level, it should be fun. I mean, I, I mean, that's a whole different podcast, really. Like, right. yeah, it should be fun. And not and frivolous fun, fun, but this is fun that they see themselves in. Basket should be lowered. The court should be small. There yeah. should be a shot clock. It should be scaled. The three-point line should be 12 feet. Free throw line. We had, we had our three-on-three program. This is 2012. We started Mistake Makers. And we shortened the court. We brought the, the hoop out to half court. So now we scaled the width. We scaled the three-point line. So now the kids, and we played with shot clocks. Now the kids, it was realistic to them, right? They could make threes and then they could go watch. They could watch Steph Curry and go, oh, I want to try that in my game tomorrow. You play five on five in a full court, a 10 foot hoop. None of that stuff's realistic. And like you said, now it's no fun. What are kids going to gravitate towards? Now the iPhone, now whatever it is. I mean, um, yeah. And, and then, yeah, I mean, there's. I so love much. that you called it mistake makers, by the way. That, that to me is an outlier right there. <laughs> yeah. And that's the key. And that's the key with the coaches, the key with the players. And people ask, well, how do you? And I remember people used to tell me, because my first seven years of coaching was all youth and high school for the most part in college. And I just, pretty much the last seven years have been at the professional level. So you can't coach NBA guys like that. Like what? Like how you coach you in high school. Okay. Chris, how do I, how do you think I coach MBA guys? Only from my experience and learning about you, you can coach them in the context of the game. Just like I would third, fourth grade group, hundred percent group, seventh and eighth grade group. Yep. You, can't, you can't do that. That's the MBA. No, no, it's basketball. This is a human being. They learn the same way. They're motivated by the same things. It's always the funniest thing to me. And that's what that Blake Griffin article, whether you think it represents you or not, that's what it said, basically, is that you were doing repetitions with an NBA player in the context of the game where you surrounded him with coaches and he had to apply skills and decisions in the context of the game. And to me, that's a no brainer. But to other people, that's not their perception of what individual player development is. Well, think about well, first of all, it's not an individual game. That's the reality. Not at all. The environment involves nine other people. So if skill is the relationship between the environment and the play and the, the performer, nine other people involved. And now you can pull that back, right? And you can build upon that through small sided games and representative learning design. I mean, so small sided games, representative learning design, really, to, it's not about small sided games, it's about representative learning design. And so you can't have your two on twos, your three on threes, your four on fours, because they represent the game. Um, what you're missing is obviously the five on five, sometimes the emotion, which would be effective learning design and the anxiety, the score of the crowd. Um, but when you work on shooting before you shot the ball in a game, what does you have to do? You have to make a decision. <laughs> you have to make a decision. So if you're shooting, 
without a decision, you could argue, are you really, is that really shooting practice? Right. So, and, and I got it. There's, there's a continuum. I got it. You know, sometimes you don't have anyone. You got to do one. I know. I got that. Sometimes you got to do one. I got that. But in a perfect world, if you could, right. And most of the time, if you're really focused on shooting practice, you'd also like to at least have a passing option before I shoot it. Wait, does my teammate have a better shot? Because the whole point, and, and this is really interesting before I finish. So shooting involves a decision. Do I shoot it? Do I pass it? Do I drive it? Wait, is how close is the guy? Like, do I have to shoot a little higher than normal? Where's the shot? There's so many, var- like there's so many variables that go into shooting and no shots ever the same. Right. We talk about perfect repetition. Well, that doesn't really happen. You watch what Russell's Russell's shot last night, right? It was a great example. He hit this three and they've got a great um, against Toronto. They've got a great look where his right foot was on the three point line. And what do you have to do before he shot it? He pulled it off because they needed a three. Now that wasn't a perfect rep. You would never practice that, but that's the game. There's so much variation. You want functional variability, right? In learning any motor, motor movement. And so, um, yeah, like, and I got it. There's a continuum, you know, do you want to build? I, and I've gone the gamut. I remember when I was in high school, Dave Hopla came to our school and I was a pop. I was on the Hopla bandwagon, beef, balance, elbow, eye contact, follow through. I mean, and I did that in college and I had our players do it all the time. I mean, and I've, to be quite honest, I've moved away from a lot of form shooting stuff, especially because you only get players for so long. Like if you want to do form shooting, you got to hoop. You don't need me. You don't need me for that. If you want to dribble through cones, you don't need me for that. You're not paying me for that. Like, I'm not going to let you pay me for that. We're here to create the environment based on what you need to get better at as an individual learner. Um, Thank you, by the way, for saying that, because I do feel like that's the distinction between player led and coach led development. Coaches are responsibilities to be able to add the game like and a player can do those other things on their own. We're learning designers. We're engineers of the environment that foster learning. That's how I look at my role, whether that's on the court or off the court with our feedback, with our film lessons, right? Cause we're constantly just trying to, we're trying to affect the mind. We're trying to get into the subconscious learning is long-term. Wait, what's his name? Uh, Doug Lamov's book. Um, fantastic. And learning is long-term, right? And, and so we're trying to affect the mind. We're trying to change the mind. So these guys can anticipate, and make better decisions, anticipate, and make better decisions. Right. And the, the irony of all this and working with Ian is that we actually don't want to teach players moves. We don't want, we don't want them to be parrots parroting back moves. We want to give, we want to create environments where now they can self-organize and create the moves they need based on manipulating time and space. Right. And uh, it, there's so much there. It's almost, almost overwhelming sometimes to just go, man, there's so much more to learn and uncover. I wanted to take a brief pause from the podcast today to tell you about the pick and roll offense course on basketballimmersion.com. An NCAA Division I coach texted me last week telling me that he joined basketballimmersion.com and took his first course. He told me, and I quote, the pick and roll offense course was tremendous. So many creative ways to categorize pick and roll concepts and make the teachings better. I cannot wait to watch more videos and complete more courses. Your learning will never stop as a member of basketballimmersion.com as there are 25 courses with more coming each week, over 600 videos, and now over 70 master classes on special topics and so much more. Get one-stop shopping to stimulate your coaching. Get access at basketballimmersion.com and support not only your coaching, but this podcast as well. Thank you for being part of this community.
But wait a minute. How does a player learn how to shoot a layup if we don't teach them the daily dozen? What's the daily dozen? <laughs> Whatever, like six different shots that you can do on both sides and you dribble in and you do them on air until then you progressed at them to, oh, now you do them against a player and all this. Like, talk to me about that because coaches still believe that a player cannot learn unless we do the on-air reps first. So I, I and I'm, so let me back up. I, I'll scaffold some things, some different footwork situations, some tactical concepts, some finishing, just to give them, they can feel an idea. And then we try to put them in situations, environments that those opportunities for action, that specific movement will emerge. And they might take something and go, oh, wow, I didn't think about that solution. That was a great, that was a great solution to that opportunity that, that, that showed up. Um, how do, and the question specifically was, how do we do it without that? Um, yeah. How do we co-create a solution with them instead of giving them the solution? And that's really what traditional coaching is giving them the solution and then expecting them to apply it. Yeah. 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 Mimicking it. Um, I, you got to create the environment for it. Right. That's would be my answer. (laughs) The environment for those opportunities for the solutions as a coach, you'd like to see them discover on their own to happen. And then the continuous feedback, those golden second moments that they talk about in, um, was a talent code. I think he talks about the golden second with Wooden. Um, it was golden second. Hey, what just happened here? Well, the defender moved there. The space was there. He was coming. So I had to jump off my right foot to finish the ball instead of my left. Exactly. That was fantastic. Right. Um, yeah, you so, get so you're creating this environment and this environment, as you said in the Blake Griffin example, is no different than the youth example, where really we're not talking about one player alone in the gym. We're talking about one player in the context of other players learning to apply skills or decisions that best suit them. So this differential learning is what you've referred to already. Yeah. So this is how I started though. Like I started coaching a group of 12 fifth and sixth graders in a gym, but then, you know, in this, and, and I had a lot of younger brothers and sisters and knew a lot of people in town. So people want to get in the gym and there wasn't an opportunity to get a lot of gym time where we're from. We had no rec center. So I'd say, yeah, come in. So we'd have 24 now from junior high to high school, boy, girl, we'd have six hoops. So I'd have to, man, we got to keep it fun. We got to keep people engaged because they won't come back. And so we, we just, I just lucked into having to use two V2s, three V3s and then go, okay, how do we, how do we keep, how do we give some structure to this? So, so it's not just free for all, right. And kids, people can get individually develop their technical side and their tactical side. Um, And Yet you create that. And I just stumbled upon this stuff before I even started reading the research that goes, oh, yeah, that's it. That makes sense because that's how we had to do it. It was constraints created my coaching, uh, my coaching solution manifold, if you will, and uh, with gym time and hoops and, and, and from a business structure. So, yeah, over time. And then that's where you start to see these these players rise as opposed to if I would try to take them one on O. And, and get my, you know, teach them all these moves I could teach them or I watched on TV last night. Um, it just wasn't having the best impact. And so, you know, over time, I realized that representing the game and, and these other things that the research has provided was the best way, whether you're coaching an individual player or a team, that's the, that's the other thing. So, um, and, and what happened was, is you get you get 24 kids in a gym at once, Chris. And I would have other coaches with me and we split them up. You know, basic gym has two main goals. And then you've got the four side hoops. 
So we would end up just using the side hoops and we do our two on O's or three on O's into our two on twos, three V threes. And I go, how do I get all these guys better individually? But then also they all go play with different teams where someone might run the flex, someone's running motion, someone's running a wheel, whatever, you know, I go, what are principles of offense that no matter what offensive system they play in, they can impact winning. And I always thought about helping players from the standpoint of how do they go back? If I was a head coach and my players were working with someone, I want them to come back. So they impact winning for my team. I don't want them to come back worrying about scoring 34 game, being okay with that and us losing. I want them to impact winning. So it always put as a, as an independent, I always put myself in the position of the head coach. To me, that was the whole point was to impact winning. And I was just having this discussion and just reading about it in this book. And it hit me like a, like a ton of bricks. The reality is, Chris, most players are more driven by their personal goals than winning at all levels. And, 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 and when, I, when I read that, I said, of course they are. But I never thought like that. I thought, you know, everyone's like Tom Brady. <laughs> everyone's like Diana Taurasi. Every, everyone, everyone just wants to win. And then by default, they, they get better because they want to they help the team win. And it's not like that. So anyway, I back back up. So I have all these different kids that go to these different teams. And what are these principles of offense that will apply no matter where, right? Moving off drives, cutting to create space. When you draw a second defender, understanding where people are going to be, all these different things, right? Kick, shoot it or swing it. No back-to-back drives unless there's space. You know, all these different things. And what happened was, so we'd have this group and then they, they would practice. They'd have their own games, inter-squad games on the weekends. We took the, the 10 most committed guys from the group. And we would go play, you know, some other AAU teams with big time players that practice and did this. These guys never practiced together. They never ran five on oh, five on five, nothing. It was all two on O's, three on O's, two V2s, three V3s, four V4s. It looked like these guys have been playing together for years because they were all on the same, they had shared cognition, what we call. They were all sharing the ability to search the side and execute. They knew, oh, if Bobby drives left, we're all pulling here. If he kicks out, I'm getting a swing. I'm stepping to it. I'm driving again. They knew exactly what was going to happen before it happened. So then it dawned on me. I said, we teach principles on defense, but we teach plays on offense. Why don't we teach principles on offense? And then not only when we teach principles on offense, does our team get better, but it gives us the opportunity to practice in a way where our individuals get better at the same time. So now we're ultra efficient. So our player development and our team development is all in one. That's the big thing coaches worry about when you talk to them. Well, when do we get our guys better? When do we work on our plays? When do we do, you, you can be efficient by doing it all in one. Um, and that's what, you know, St. Joe's did that year. That's what coach Santa Cola went all, all, all in on. And, and then it also dawned on me too, talking about skill development that, I mean, what they, I think they were the number one, three pointing, three point shooting team in the country, top five in assists, all these as a team and as individuals, all their skill metrics, right? Finishing, passing, shooting, all these things at, as individuals and as a team all went through the roof. And, and that it dawned on me at that point that really who's in charge of skill development is the head coach with his strategy and practice design. And if you practice offense versus defense, skill is going to evolve from those situations. It's going to emerge. Yeah. And too many people think that skill, biomechanical skill is independent of decision-making. Whereas 
again, you never play the game independent of decisions, as you said, in that shooting example. And that seems to be a barrier for people to understand how a player can improve without the one-on-o on-air reps. And we're not saying don't do those reps. We're just saying that's not a coach's responsibility, correct? I'm not saying don't do them yet. Yeah. I mean, I think every shot's different. Every sometimes shot. the hands have to be a little higher. Sometimes you it's a floater. Sometimes I got to pull my foot back because I'm on the line. Sometimes every, differential learning. Everything's different. Yeah. There's variation. And um, and I guess the thing is, uh, yeah, I, I just look at this like you, you look at an NBA player on average over the course of their career, their numbers don't change. Field goal percentage, three-point percentage. They've got all these coaches, shooting coaches, professional level coaches. Why don't they change? These guys shoot thousands of shots a year, thousands. Why don't they change on air blocked repetitions? Um, you know, and then sometimes you might have a spike, right? You might have a spike yeah. in the year and then, but how do we, right? How do we increase performance and then stabilize? That's the key. Well, instead of shooting a hundred thousand shots to shoot 10,000 shots, but game like, and that would ultimately have more improvement. The only thing that in game like is a dicey thing, right? Because yep. you see people go game like where, He's got a game like shot. I told him to run to the corner. Then he came up <laughs> off a pick and roll. That well, sorry, no, let me define that. For me, game like means offense and defense. Yeah, yeah. Like there's a decision, right? Perception, not, action is engaged. Yeah, and, uh, and then you see there's a lot. There's a big thing now with, um, with uh, with people having dummy defenders, right? And and I tell all the time in our in our gym, dummy defense is a skill. She's not just out there contesting it, like. You see a guy's just shooting. He's just got a hand in his face. You might as well just get the guy off the floor because he's not making the decision. There's no point in having that defender there. The defender is there to invite, invite an action. Do I shoot? Do I pass? Do I drive? And they're that, learning. They're getting perceptual reps too. Totally. Um, so it's just funny. So we'll have stuff sometimes and, and coaches will come in and they'll give me their development plans for their players and they'll say, yeah, you know, so-and-so is really, he's got to improve his, his percentages, you know, his, his contested shot percentage. And I think to myself, I said, well, why are we even shooting contested shots? I don't, wait, what do you mean? Like, That's a decision-making problem. <laughs> isn't, isn't the ultimate objective a layup, right? I mean, at the end of the day, it's an invasion sport. We want to invade the goal. So the most efficient shot's a layup, no matter who you are, right? No matter, even the, the Kevin Durant's of the world. Um, and then the second most efficient shot is a catch and shoot three. And I remember coaching in whatever, 2009-10, we had this fifth and sixth grade group in the winter. They were all the kids that didn't make the travel team. So they weren't very good. Let's just be honest. And, and, and I always just wanted to create an environment for players that love the game that wanted to grow. I didn't care what level they were at. And, uh, and I remember we had, we were going to play all these travel teams that did have tryouts. And I'm like, man, we don't really have any chance to compete against these guys. And, and I thought I went and had a meeting with a, a mentor of mine, Hank Smith, who was the head coach at Emerson college at the time. And now he works with the thunder and a lot of his guys are in the NBA and, um, front office coaching, et cetera. And we were, I was like, Hank, what do I do? And he said, well, the only two shots you guys have a chance to make are layups and catch and shoot shots. That's it. If they have to do anything outside that, it's going to be a disaster. And I go, he's right. So now we had to create, you know, a system that, that, that developed those shots, but also developed their ball handling. We didn't want to make them robots. We wanted to develop the big picture. And when you look, when I look back on that, Chris, though, what I realized, those are the two most efficient shots for anyone. It, it doesn't matter who you are, right? I mean, there might be some outliers, but I saw the stat. DeMar shoots over 53% from the mid-range. And then was it KD and Chris Parr, like 40, 42%. And people say, man, they could still, the mid-range is still, and there's context. Sometimes I got late clock and different things. 
Like, but their two most efficient shots are still layup and a catch and shoot three. Like the, even the best players in the world. And you think about it because the layup's so close. And then growing up, what do you get more reps of? Really just shooting off the catch just by default, right? Someone's passing to you or you're you're spinning to yourself. But so Fredo's principle, 20% of what we do gives us 80% of our output. So focus on creating objectives that give us 80% of our output, right? Simplify. Wisdom simplifies, knowledge complicates. And there's a lot of knowledge out there in, our, in basketball and different in, in every sector of life. It's not about adding more knowledge. It's about simplifying. And, and when you simplify, that's what experts do, right? They chunk. They take all these things. There's 100 things out there and they, they chunk them. Okay, I just took those 100 things and chunked them into five categories, five principles. You work back from, you know, first principles of anything, no matter what the subject is. And then you can build from there. And um, the thing is, most players, and I, in my experience, uh, most coaches don't really understand what the principles of play are before they start building their playbooks or their, their systems. Right? It's interesting. So talk to us a little bit more. You talked about shared cognition and this, this process. So give us a, a little bit of an example or an insight in terms of how you build that shared cognition within the flow. You talked about you know, some small sided games. You talked about obviously playing offense versus defense, but then what are you actually doing? Are you stopping play and then asking questions? What is the actual mechanism of you building that shared cognition? Everything we do is still about building cognition with our players, Mm -hmm. understanding how you, your ability to anticipate and make decisions with and without the ball. Um, So, and I guess we just have a, there's a set of principles, um, you know, that we operate on that lead us to the best, ideally to the best possible outcome, which is either a layup for the team or a catch and shoot shot. I mean, that's it. And I'm not as black and white. We still practice stuff off the dribble. We still practice high paint, other paint stuff, because a lot of times, even if we, I work with an individual player and they develop their own individual cognition, ability to search the side and execute, the team strategy still doesn't surround that. So they might be playing with two bigs. So anytime they drive, there's, there's really a chance to get a layup because they got four people in front of the goal, right? They're two, they're two teammates and the team defenders. So you have to be able to make shots that are, are in that area. But, um, how are you engaging the mind in these work in these practices uh, with an individual player focus? Yeah. So we try to have other bodies out there. At least we try to do most stuff. Like for, sometimes you can't like I'm with, um, I'm with a player right now in Phoenix and yeah, some days you have to just do, and some days based on where the player's at to age point in the season, you know what? They just want to get 20 minutes on and just, we want to, we want to block out some footwork stuff or some reps. That's, I'm not, again, there's not black and white. There's shades of gray. Yeah, we're just going to rep it out today. They do want to get a workout in. They just want to get a sweat, relax the mind. It's not going to be a heavy cognition day, a heavy movement day. It's not going to, it's not what it calls for. Um, But in terms of building it in practice, um, I mean, we just design different. So we'll start with a technical, we warm up with our technical stuff, whatever that footwork is or finishing of the day. And depending on the player, some of their, you know, what they technical solutions, they already have created for themselves. When you watch the film, all they really like to do this to manipulate space, going to their left, going to the right. They like to do this finishing, or here's a solution we need to add 
that's not that that it, that is causing them not to be as effective finishing or footwork. Just to clarify, when you're saying these repetitions of technical, we're not talking about blocked rep of the same thing over and over. Generally, we're talking about random and variable reps. So we'll start with some. We keep it so. Again, with block and block and random. Again, it's a spectrum. Sometimes it's okay to block. Absolutely, it's okay to block, and then you move up that continuum to completely random and variable because the game is that. It's just a compilation of continuous game moments that are completely random. To be to be honest, um, and so we will scaffold. But like, let's say we're working on some footwork. It might be two or three minutes. We'll move them on different spots of the court. They might be close to the rim. Three, right? They might go to the left. And then we'll slowly put a defender on him. Okay, now read. Do you have a shot or is it a drive? Now we might add a defender off the ball and an offensive off the. But we'll we'll build it up from that, especially when they're learning and the, when the learning phase is new. But then as they understand and they they've shown competence, whether it's technically or tactically, practices do become really very random and variable. Um, and then see, can they sort through that? That's what principals do. They sort through chaos. Right. I want to clarify the defender coach because this is this is a really important part of your practices. Adding the defender generally, when people think of constraints, we think about giving the offense constraints. But in these examples, the defender has the constraint that will help shape the offensive players' solutions. They're correct? creating an affordance. Yes. Yes. Yeah. They're creating an opportunity for action. Yes. Um, so, so a defender may have you may give the defender say two options. Okay, listen, either. Don't close stay out short them. or close stay out long. So they drive by or give them exactly. space. And now they, they make a decision that they pick up and shoot. And the offensive player doesn't know the decision prior no, to no, reading no, no. it. And that's the most important part, right? Yeah. 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 They, they don't know. Yeah. They yeah. don't They're, know. Then you can scat. Then you can, you can layer it. Okay. Let's turn it into a two V two. Now you're reading the on-ball defender, but also the off-ball defender and off-ball player. Yeah, offensive play, right? It was built into threes, fours. And then, you know, so in the way that's block, right? Because you're progressively moving. They, you know, 1v1s, 2v2s, 3v3s, 4v4s, but it is random in the sense that you don't know the decision on the ball. We'll start the offensive player with the ball, different spots on the floor. We'll start the opposing offensive defensive player on different spots. So we start to add in variation that way with positioning on the floor. Um, and then it's, it's structured in a way that, Again, as a coach, you know what you're trying to help shape. Oh, you have to. Yes. Yeah. It's not random. You're not coming out here and saying, oh, whatever happens. happens. Well, it's funny. So you talk to, you'll talk to coaches, even front office people say, what are you guys doing? Uh, the, or players will actually try to get me involved with their teams. And they'll say, hey, you know, I want to have this meeting with this GM or assistant GM or whatever. <laughs> and you, you have it. And, and I haven't done a good job with them, to be honest. Um, but uh the funny thing would be like, so yeah, you know, we really need to get better decision makers. And I said, Oh, you, that makes sense. I agree. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, So what are you doing about that? You know, we're playing a lot of five V five. We're just playing a lot. The guys just need to play. Said, okay. <laughs> and then, you know, the conversation really can't go much farther than that. Right. Cause it's like, we're just going to run in circles, but um, uh yeah, you, you need to create some structure around things. And then you can, as they as they show a level of understanding, and that's where the principles come in place. So I'll say, hey, X player, if you do beat your defender going to the left, what is your offensive teammate? What do we want them to do? Well, I'll tell you what we don't want them to do. We don't want them to stand, right? Because now the defensive player can just help and recover. They're just playing shell defense, right? We don't want to make anything ever easy on the defense. We always want to make it hard. So just to start, let's move the direction of drive because more often than not, that's going to put 
you in a better position is going to create more space for me to defend it. Very simple, right? Um, so now they've got multiple decisions. Do they have a shot? Do they have a drive? If they drive, is the defender helping? Do they give it up, right? If they drive and go to finish, is the defender coming from behind? Where's the length? Is it the left side, right side? Do they have to finish right foot, left foot, right? Constantly you're scaffolding. There's multiple decisions in just one possession that as a coach you're, you're observing and then you're giving a feedback. Hey, why'd you do that? Well, I went left because there was space there. Then the defense came over. So I got vertical. I hit him. I hit my teammate there. I respaced. They swung the ball. I know in a swing pass, more often than not, I have an opportunity to rip away right away. So that's why I did it. And I finished off my left foot because the defense was coming. And that was the quickest finish. That makes a lot of sense to me. Perfect. Next possession. You know, so you're constantly checking for understanding. But as a coach, and this is the big thing when I've worked with coaches, and I haven't done a good job of this is if a coach isn't confident in their level of understanding to see these things in real time, whether it's with an individual player or a, a team, they're going to, it's tough for them, right? Because they want to, they, as a coach, I get it. You're a leader. You want to know what the heck you're talking about at all times, or else can you lead? How, how can you lead with conviction? So you're constantly as a coach, this is what I tell people. I remember I had, actually, I'm not going to go into that story, but <laughs> I, I, um, <laughs> You know, it's really like uh, in the spring and summers, these next six months specifically, it, 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 it's, it's a lot. You're on the court four or five, six, seven, eight hours a day. And in our gym, we have we've got a lot going on. We've got players. We've got apprentices. We've got practice squads. We've got – so you're constantly – there's a lot for me to take in and just make sure things are running smoothly. But within one practice, you're constantly engaged. You One, you have your practice plan, your structure – but then every possession, you've got I, me as a coach. I have to be paying attention because I need to know what I'm looking for to see if the players starting to see the same things. And when they're not, okay, I've got to pull back. Okay, we haven't got that. I got to now create a, an, uh, an environment where the solution's a little easier. A solution, it's freaking tiring mentally. It is tiring, and, it, coach. In that example, are there any direct interventions where you'd say hold and then coach the player in the context of what they're not seeing? Yeah, yeah, all the time. Of course. Okay. Yeah, yeah, all the time. Hey, hold on. What just happened? Yeah, they swung the ball. What'd you have an opportunity to do? I should have gone. What'd you do? I held it, got into my bag. And then what happened? I just shot a tough shot that didn't go in. Exactly. We don't want to shoot tough shots. I know they're sexy. I know they make Instagram and highlights. But, you know, you, you make that shot 30% of the time. So you know what that means? You miss it 70% of the time. So there's a greater chance you're going to miss it. And at the end of the day, we want to score more points than the other team. That's the objective. We want to win. That's the objective. That's why I coach. So I want these, my coach, these, I, uh, this is a curious question. These players that have come from, you know, rather traditional type of environments, say perfect practice environments, uh, when they get to you and now they see this environment you put them in, I'm curious, what is their initial reaction? And then what happens gradually as they're in this environment more? Good question. So I will say it is pretty funny. And it actually makes me think because we've got some new players that we're going to be onboarding. I will say the first probably two to four weeks when we get a new player that's never been with us, it they're not, they're so they're just trying to just figure out what the heck's going on each day. Not even from a basketball standpoint, from a in just an environment standpoint, it's, it's very new to them. Um, yeah. It's very new to them. I would say. Yeah. And, just, and, once get that part, 
And then even just the principles, because so what was it? Tactical periodization. I think it was Marino, right? The soccer coach that I read that maybe and that dawned on me. It was like, and that's when I started thinking about the principles. They said, before these players learn, we worry about any technical skill. They need to understand the principles of play, the the tactical principles, because the two most important principles are uh, positioning and decision-making, right? Those skills. We talked about that. So they need to constantly know, what good positioning is offensively and defensively with them without the ball. So now it's going to put them in a better decision-making um, opportunity. So just laying the, the principles. I mean, I remember one player came in, he was like, I couldn't believe it's like I was doing three on O with two, just like college kids. The first day of practice is <laughs> so we're just saying when this happens, that happens. But once they get these principles down, once they have now their individual skill soars, they become way more efficient, more effective. They they make everyone else more efficient and effective. And when you get five players on the same page, that's when you get, you know, what St. Joe's did that year. You know, it's just all of a sudden you have the same team that was, I don't know, 250 in off, offense bumps up to number one or whatever they were because they're all seeing things before they happen, right? That's like great players in all sports. They go, seems like they got all the time in the world, right? Larry Bird shot like this. Made a lot of shots, though. And if you look at that's the other thing. Reggie Miller, Steve Nash, Ray Allen, Steph Curry. They all shoot different. Differential, yeah. yeah. One thing that always struck me, too, with my players in these environments was especially new players would come in. They'd be like, when, when do we do the one-on-one workout, coach? I'll say this. We do, do. We still do. Like We start with a lot of 1VO, 1V1s. And then within the framework of our 2V2s, 3V3s, 4V4s, whatever that day is called for in our programming, I'm still always observing, are they manipulating these technical aspects we want? Hey, that was a great opportunity to get into this. That was a great opportunity for this finish. That was a great opportunity for that pass, right? Within the tactics, that's what tactical periodization is. Once you get your tactics down, boom, then you stack your technical, your your physiological on that, all on your tactics, Right. Um, and you can always go backwards. You talk about scaffolding and you talked about nonlinear pedagogy, but you can always go backwards and reconnect them with these different things if they're not applying the skill or they're making the right decision, but they're not applying the right skill. Chris, it's not you can always go back. You're always going backwards. Always. Always. <laughs> oh, you know, you're constantly as a coach yeah. that you're, you're observing, OK, they're not picking this up. They're not taking. wow, they got this fast. We can move on. Or, you know, we've got to revisit this. We've got to create this situation. We've got to create this situation so it's so blatant that they're going to execute this individual move, that they can execute it. And now when they do it in practice that represents the game, the prime doesn't know the difference now between practice and the game. They've, they, they've got that confidence because everything does come down to confidence, right? I think however you get there, there's more than one way to skin a cat. At the end of the day, we're just talking about what's the most efficient way to build a confident player and a confident team. That, that is what we're trying to do. Talk about that because I think, again, I found that if I take a player that's never done some, whether I say BDT, basketball decision training shooter, something like that, and they're used to doing block reps without decisions, their shooting percentage in practice automatically goes down because it's more like the game where a shot is presented. Yeah, there's a, a big decision. struggle. There's a big struggle. So we had... Talk to me uh, about that process. Yeah, so we, so a good example that comes to mind, I mean, most of the players, but really one, because we, so we, we've, we, uh, we film practice, we live code it, players get practice feedback, we stat practice, right? And we've got to, we've got, our system's got to be better. Feedback's a big part of learning. I mean, it's a massive part of learning, not only in the moment, 
but also when they get away from it, hey, you did this well, you did that well, look for this. I mean, feedback's everything. That's what coaching is, really. Um, and we had Jerome Robinson. So this was, I don't know what year this was, but I don't know, four or five years ago. He was a sophomore at Boston College. And he came out and, and, and was with me in L.A. for about seven or eight weeks with our draft guys and some NBA guys. And uh, so it was a sophomore going to junior year. And that year, I, had a, I, was, I was at St. Monica High School in, in Santa Monica. And I had, we had a big draft class. It was about 12 or 15 guys. And I had about three hours to do it in. And then with the draft, everything's every day's changing. You know, one guy's sick. One guy goes to team workout. One team's coming in. You got to manipulate the schedule. And then we only really had, it was a high school gym. We only had two main hoops. The side hoops were small. And then a lot of times the other hoop was unavailable for various reasons that I won't go into. So I have one hoop for about two or three hours for 15 guys. So, you know, what we did Chris and it was, and this is the, this was a tough part when I morphed to the professional level, I definitely had to get how, how we practice from our youth to our pro. Cause people didn't really see this. It was a lot of one-on-one stuff guys. And, and that's perception of that's the cultural perception. When you get better individually, it's all one-on-one, one-v-one, right? And then you play five on five. You really go one-on-one, one-v-one, and then go play pickup. That's like the, that's the development model. So people come in, we're playing two on twos, three on threes, four on fours with our draft guys. And it was actually good for this class because most of these guys, their draft workouts were going to be competitive. Two V twos, three V threes, four V fours. Jerome Robinson was in that, mixed him in with that group. And he struggled mightily, like the first two, three, four weeks. And we've seen this consistently now, this period of instability, this two to four weeks where guys struggle. Like, like you said, they feel like they're going backwards. They're not making shots, everything. They're turning it over. And, and I've seen it so often now just from working with so many players at all levels, just stick with it, stick with it, stick with it, stick with it, stick with it. Boom. He took off like weeks five, six, seven, eight. I mean, by far was the best player in the gym, you know, and we had some NBA guys in at that point was making shots and then went on that year to be, I think it was runner up ACC player of the year to Bagley shot 50, 40 at BC it was a lottery pick um, and had a phenomenal year. And you know the first thing that happened when he got in the NBA? Tell me. Needed to change his shot. (laughs) You know, had to get it off quicker. It was the NBA. So, and then he struggled shooting, believe it or not. You know, and uh, anyway. But do you do you felt feel like he needed to change his shot? No. No. I wouldn't. I've gotten so I've I'm probably so far the other way now. And I used to be the that way. I was big technique, big form shooting. I've gotten, and because also time doesn't permit, right? It takes a lot of time. And, and these guys, especially you only get them for so long. I, I mean, I might even get a guy for uh, most of our guys on average, we probably only get four weeks. And then the older get, they get to, they're on these like restrictions, like guy can only practice for 30 minutes and 20 of it's got to be spot shooting and just all this ridiculous stuff where you're not going to move the needle at all. Um, really? Uh, but no, I, I've gotten so far, far off that. And and the thing, and the thing that confirmed that too is working with these teams, like when we work with St. Joe's. So wait, how do you go from we never talked about shooting technique with them? We never talked, we never did any block shooting practice. They were the number one three-point shooting team in the country. And the year before with the same players, they you know, they shot 32%. Next year they're shooting, I don't know, 41 or whatever it was. We never there was no form shooting. There was because no they problem. were shooting open shots, coach. 
they were better, shot. better shots and how they practice strategy yeah. and practice strategy and practice. Mm -hmm. And in practice, they were getting the same repetitions of the shots that they were shooting in games because yeah. it was out of the game context. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And people will be, people will too would go, they almost did never, never did any five and oh, or five and fives. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, you I know Rob and I align on that one. <laughs> and, uh, and, 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 and I, and I'm not like saying never say never. And if a guy comes in and says he wants to start his practice with 10 minutes of form shooting, great. We'll do that. I don't, if it, you know, if you, some days you got, I mean, and there's different ways to get creative with five on I mean, you can get creative with it. Hey, we need X, Y, and Z before we score, figure it out, you know, give them a, a problem. I mean, never say never. I think there's, there's optimal and less optimal, right? My and creativity with five on O was to add one defender for people that, couldn't grasp their mind around not doing it. Just add one defender and it makes it more game-like now, yeah. ideally more, but still because <laughs> yeah. coaches have our, they want clean reps, right? They think clean reps equate to learning. And we know that's no, not true. No different than individual stuff. And that's yeah. the hard. That, so going back to your point with these guys that struggle, that's the hard part as a coach. Cause you go, I mean, this guy's awful today. He's probably not going to come back. We all, because as a coach, you want, you want this sense of mastery as a player. You want this sense of mastery. You go make five off this move. Oh yeah. That looked great. Make five, this move. That looked great. Here we go. Make 10 from five spots. Yeah, we're good. And everyone leaves happy that day. You've got this false sense of mastery, but you're just, you, there was really nothing almost got accomplished besides a workout. They got to sweat and they left feeling good, which is a, which the hard days I do get there. Some days you got to do that. There are some days where, hey, well, this guy's really struggled for our girls really struggled three or four days. Let's have a let's have a feel good day. Let's block some things out. Let's get them back on the right track. Comfort and, and confidence is important, it, as yeah, you've alluded yeah, to. I got that. But in in yeah, it is funny though, right? The five on oh and and you, you know so what, where I was going with that coach, I want you to connect for us. You talked about the Jerome Robinson example. Eventually they all not only not not everyone, again, that's a generalization, but most of them buy in. And they end up craving this type of coaching because they know that it connects to the game. I will say, and everyone's got their, so I guess in my professional career, everyone's got their, their, yes, I would say they appreciate it. I would say they appreciate, they kind of know. And the funny thing is, is they know how hard it is. Like I have one player say, man, I used to go out on Wednesdays and Thursdays, but like, I can't, cause I know like, it's not even the physical. It's like, I mentally have to be the like reps, ready yeah. tomorrow morning. Um, and I'll say this, the players that, yeah, you know, you have these, these moments in time as humans and, and we're all kind of like this where we go through this, this crossroads, you know, and it's like the hero's journey where we're down. What are we going to do? We're at a crossroads. And those players that, you know, come and commit or even coaches, I guess, to coach Santa Cole might fall into this. They come and they commit and they work through those periods of instability. They end up having major jumps. They do. And then that doesn't happen often though. Really in my career, it's probably happened. You know, it's happened often with different players, but you probably only get one of those per player. Cause once they make a big jump, you know, as humans, right. Once we feel like we're, we're good again, then we can, we go back to what, you know, we go back to comfort land. Um, but Jerome's an example of that Blake was an example of that what two or three summers ago, you know, he had a monster year going into that before he got traded. Um, you know, Russ is MVP year, Victor, when he got traded, you know, there's all these things, Paul, like there's all these, these moments, in the athlete's career 
where they're doubted or they're down or, you know, something happens. And, and, and that's a great place to be as a coach when you get someone who's, who's that hungry and locked in for two, three, four months. Um, that's a fun place. Cause you know, you can make a dent. Um, that's a fun place. That's a, no doubt a fun place. And maybe let's shift it back to helping coaches. You referenced some of this stuff, uh, the coaches that are open-minded, obviously that bring you in and are open to it. What are some of the lessons or takeaways from helping other coaches? I think I got spoiled a little bit with coach Nicola because he was so, he was so, um, well, we have a relationship, he coached me and we're close friends. And so there's already this level of trust. And then like we talked about, there's already this level where there's really no pressure on him, right? He could, you know, there's pressure. I mean, there's pressure, but it wasn't at, at you know, a high major MBA level. Um, and, and we did an overhaul. I mean, he just went all in. He's like, and we talked every day and said, coach, based on what happened in last practice, this is what we do in practice, playing practice with him every day, watch every game, playing practice. And he did everything to the T. Boom, went through it. And then when we had, we hit, I remember the start of the year, they lot, they started one and two. And I remember, and they had to change, change some personnel things. There was a lot of things he had to do to get this thing going. And I was like, you know what? I said to him, I said, coach, man, I don't blame you. If you just want to do what you've always done. Like, and what did he do before? Was it more plays? I mean, standard. Yeah. Like this year we're running, you know, kind of what everyone does. Hey, Villanova won the national championship. Let's do what they do. Hey, yeah. I saw we're going to run the, the pack. Defense. You know? Yeah, 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 yeah. I get you. Um, and then the same practice, the five on O's, the five ball shooting, the three man weaves, the perfection drills. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. The North Carolina transition into the Jim Calhoun jump, whatever, you know, yeah. practice plans were freaking good looking. They were really good looking and flashy and he's organized. Um, and uh, so he had this moment of doubt. And you well, said, go so back I had a moment of doubt because I felt bad because you want people to succeed. It's like, dang, coach, like, <laughs> you know, and I knew there were still some things he was going to have to get over. And I was like, it's going to be really tough. And he went he went with it. And then my experience, you know, at the higher levels. So now I'm like, okay. And, I, and I'd seen it in my own experience with lower level high school coaches and groups of players. I knew it. And now we did it at the college level, division three. And then at the higher levels, it's really tough at that level for a coach just to go all in is what I've learned. It's almost not going to happen. And one and one's fell swoop. It's just not. And um, just maybe being a little more, because it's a lot of time on my end too, to be honest, and probably just being a little simpler, just, Hey, you still want to do this at the other, here's some, maybe some ways we can, we can help you just improve it a little bit. Cause it's tough. Even if they want to start playing in principles offensively, even if they want to start practicing more effectively, even if they want to maybe change their philosophy and personnel, um, they're not going to do it all at once. They're still going to be, and you can't cherry pick, right. To really get maximum results. So I think probably lowering my expectations to be quite honest. Um, but they got there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they stuck with it and they had faith and they got better. And uh, yeah, I'll give you a quick example of a coaching client I worked with. Initially, they asked me, hey, can you help me add counters and different types of you know, plays uh, to a current thing that they run? And I'm like, yeah, I can do that. But how about this, coach? If we talk about ways that we can help your players make better decisions with one within what you're doing. So it never looks like they're running an actual play. And uh, to me, that seems like a more efficient way to be able to get to where you want to go. No, I mean, there's so many things for coaches uh, in here and uh, 
I just am so grateful that we finally had this conversation. So thank you for uh, sharing the game with us. Thanks, Chris. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Basketball Podcast. Learn more from some of the best coaches in the world at ImmersionVideos.com. At ImmersionVideos.com, our unwavering commitment to you is to offer the tools necessary for you to be an outstanding coach who values learning and seeks to evolve. If you're a better coach now than you were yesterday, we've done our job, and so have you. The goal is to focus on authentic sharing of resources you can use to help your players and teams improve. Drills, tactics, techniques, philosophies, practice design, and so much more will be shared from numerous coaches, including Nate Oates, Doug Novak, Aaron Fern, Dave Smart, and so many more to come. Go to ImmersionVideos.com now to check out all the products and follow at ImmersionVideos on Twitter to keep up to date. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and to give the Basketball Podcast and this week's guest a shout out on social media to show your support for us sharing the game. And to stay up to date on all things Basketball Immersion, subscribe to our newsletter at basketballimmersion.com newsletter. Thank you.